0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks Message Podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk in relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your App Store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. I have your Bibles. Go ahead and open up. It is the second to the last book in all the Scripture, so it's almost easier to start at the end and work your way forward. And it's one one chapter, so that shouldn't take long. We're just going to take the next three weeks, go through Jude. And then from there, uh, we're, we're going to jump into the book of Revelation. We're going to study that letter from Patmos. And a lot of people are excited about that. A lot of people are scared by that. A lot of people are like, are you serious? You really want to do that? Um, and here's the thing. Any revelation from God is always to bring about unity. It's always to bring about Uh, knowledge and understanding. It's never to be confusing. It's never meant to cause division. Um, And we have to keep that in mind as we're studying through the book of Revelation, where some of us might have differing opinions of how some of this goes. But again, the book of Revelation isn't about end times. It's a book of Jesus. It's the only book out of the entire Bible that has a blessing tied to it for the reader and for the listener. There's actually seven Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And so we even created a couple extra resources to help us in in our study through the book of Revelation. So that's going to be coming up starting in May. But starting today, we're going to jump into the book of Jude. And and a lot of people are like, oh man, Revelation is going to be so good. And I'm just going to warn you right now, Jude is going to smack you in the face more than the book of Revelation. And in three weeks, walking through this book, I'm telling you it's going to smack you harder than the whole book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, open up. Uh, if you don't have one and you want one just like me, you know because you want to be like the pastor, which is a horrible thing to want to do. but if you if you want a physical Bible, we bought the same ones that I use and study and preach out of they're in the hub, grab one of those and that's always even a resource. if you want to gift a Bible to someone, and it's like, oh, I'd really like to go into the hub and grab one of those. And we want that to be a resource for even you to do ministry and give someone a Bible. And so here we go. Jude, only one chapter, so we're only going to look at the first seven verses this morning. Jude's writing starts in verse one. He says, Jude, servants of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ." May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Not added, multiplied. Now, I went to a small school in North Missouri. Math was not my favorites. But when we're talking about mercy and peace and love of God, I like multiplication far more than addition. And then verse 3, says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, so he gives us what he wanted to write about, but I found it necessary to write to to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So he wanted to write about our common salvation. And then the Holy Spirit just kind of said, Jude, that's so cute that you wanted to write that letter. Here's the letter I need you to write. And verse four, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord, of our God, into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but they left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgments of the great day. And just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire." Usually when you get to a passage that stops with eternal fire as a punishment, that's a good breaking spot right there. I think there's enough that we can talk about this morning. Now, what we know about Jude is he's the half-brother of Jesus, right? Same mom, different dads. And if you understand the birth story of Jesus, you get that. See, Jude was biological to Joseph. But Jesus wasn't. Jesus, Mary, was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and that's how she conceived. That's what the angel told her. You know, the Holy Spirit has overshadowed you, and you've conceived what is from the Holy Spirit, and you will bear a child, and his name is Jesus. And so Jesus was legally Joseph's son, but not biological. And we always kind of joke when we talk about Jesus's brothers and sisters, and he had quite a few, which would be normal in this culture. Like, oh, what was it like to be the little brother to Jesus? You're always getting in trouble, and then the older brother never gets in trouble because he's like perfect or something. And I can really resonate with that as a younger brother because my older brother never got in trouble. He was perfect, at least in my mom's eyes. I always took the blunt of all the trouble and and persecution from my mother. Yeah, it wasn't punishment. It was persecution, I promise. But what I love about Jude is he doesn't start his letter talking about how he's the half-brother of Jesus. See, in our culture, uh, we even kind of joke sometimes, we'll be like, is anybody related to any kind of celebrity? And like, oh, yeah, my second cousin, twice removed neighbor's best friend, they're related to Elvis. Like, with that kind of gap, like, I think we're all related to Elvis, right? Like, and we try to do that. Like, that's going to give us some kind of platform or a little bit of clout. Like, oh, look at them. They, they, they might have known somebody slightly related because, again, we platform these celebrities. But imagine being Jude. And, and, again, he's talking to those in the church. Like, if there was ever a moment that you were going to talk about, like, hey, like, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Like, you might have to listen to me, but he doesn't. That Jude always leads with humility, as his brother James does, and he never talks about that biological connection. Because if we were writing the book, this is how I would have wrote it, and you guys too, because we're all dirty, rotten sinners. Nick, I would have said a servant of, a a co-servant with James and the half-brother of Jesus. Like, I absolutely would have put that biological connection, been like, we're brothers, I'm a little bit better than the rest of you because, again, our hearts are very prideful and ego. But what I love, what Jude is telling us is our biological connection means nothing in the family of God. I used to be a youth pastor before coming here to Calvary, and I had students that were in my ministry, and their dad was my direct report, like he was the boss over me. And I would tell both of them, child and father, I don't care who you are. I don't care that your dad's my boss. I'm going to hit you straight, square in the teeth with the Word of God every time. You're not going to get any special privileges just because you're a PK. If anything, I'm going to kick you a little bit harder. And I say the same thing to my kids. They get no special treatment just because I'm the pastor. If anything, you know the pressure of being a PK, that's coming from pops and not the church. Because biology doesn't really matter in the family of God. We used to encourage our students that our... Your best friends should be in the church. Why? Because the depth of relationship is so much more than what you could experience in the world. Your friends at school, they're not going to pray for you. Your friends at school are not going to pour in the word of God to you. They're not going to keep you accountable. They're not going to call you out when you're walking in sin. And the same is true for us as adults. That our closest friendships, our closest relationships are not biological. They're not the friends of the world. It should be Within the family of God. Because in the family is where we're gonna pray for each other. We're gonna build each other up. We're gonna encourage each other. But a lot of times we come into church with a bunch of strangers that we kind of know barely and we don't wanna be real with and transparent because we don't want them to know that we're broken and sinners. Hello, we're in church. If we're ever gonna be real and transparent, it should be here because just by walking into a building like this, we're testifying to everybody I'm broken. And I'm need of grace. And so Jew doesn't lead biologically. If anything, he says, yeah, hey, I'm the half-brother of James. But he never drops the family card. He, oh, don't you know who my brother is? Don't you know who my dad is? Don't you? That has nothing to do with it. And so he, he is writing to the church, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, kept for Jesus. And he says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is actually a really, really hard letter. It's not the letter that Jude wanted to write, but it's the letter he needed to write. And you know when you have really bad news that you need to tell someone? We all have different kind of ways that we do that. Some people like really butter you up. Like, hey, you're, you've been doing such a great job at work, and we see the extra effort, but yeah, you messed up. Oh royally at this moment right here. Or, you know, like with our kids sometimes, like, hey, I know you're trying. I know you're giving it A for effort, but you still got a D minus. We need to talk. I'm just not that way. Usually when I have to have a conversation with one of my teenagers, like I just kick down the door and be like, all right, let's have it out. Let's go. Right? Shoot now, shoot later, shoot some more, then we'll talk. And even when I got diagnosed, that's what I wanted from my doctor. He kind of walks in. He's like, well, I'm like, don't play the games. Like I'm from the medical field. Don't try to dumb it down. Just tell me what's up. What are we dealing with? What do we got? Don't sugarcoat it. Let's just be real. And so this morning, Jude's like, yeah, you're going to need some mercy. You're going to need some peace. You're going to need some love. And I'm hoping that's going to be multiplied onto you because we need to have some real talk right now. And again, he's talking in the church. He says, beloved, those that are personally experiencing the love of Christ. And let's be real. I'm not going to be naive. Let's be real about it. Everybody that walks in this morning to Calvary or jumps online or is up at the loft right now, I'm not going to be so naive to think that we are all in Christ and we are all believers. Some of you are probably new here or you maybe really haven't given your life to the Lord. You're just kind of waiting, checking things out, kicking the tires of this church thing. And that's okay. But understand who Jude is writing to. He's not talking to those outside of the church a family meeting. We have those sometimes even in the Pierce household. Usually it's trying to decide where to eat because my wife can't make a decision. Right? We all know mom can't decide where we're going to eat, boys. Let's go. So we call the family. Family meeting. This is a family meeting that Jude's having. We don't know exactly which church he's talking to or if there's a group of churches, but we do know he's talking to the church. So beloved, I'm eager to write. I wanted to talk about our salvation. I want this to be an encouraging thing but I found it more necessary. We need to talk about something else. And so he says, we, I'm appealing to you. I needed to write to appeal to you to contend for the faith. That's kind of the the main theme of the whole letter. He's writing, why? Because we need to contend for the faith. In In the original language, that means it's a continuous struggle, and so when we think of Christianity, we think our walk with Jesus, like if your walk with Jesus is just like smooth, easy sailing, no rough, choppy waters, and it's says rainbows and unicorns and cupcakes, you're probably not walking with Jesus. I love you, but I'm going to be honest with you. We are always going to be having to contend for the faith. It's always going to be a continuous struggle. Why? Because truth will always be attacked darkness never ceases to want to try to overcome the light air and falsehood never ceases to want to attack what is true right holy righteous and pure and so we're always going to be continuously struggling kind of like that really good theologian uh mr incredible maybe seen his movies remember that very first the incredibles movie and he's kind of talking about how the world always gets itself in danger and he's the one man that always has to save the world. You know, that old Hollywood movie that they talk about, one man saving the world. Like they stole that from the Bible right there. And he says, can the world ever just be saved? Could there just never be a moment that I have to come in and save everything? Could it just, could it just, could it just be saved? I don't have to do anything. Can I just have a break? And a lot of times we think the same thing in our faith. You know, it's always like a personal struggle, or maybe our marriage is on the rocks a little bit, or we have this uh, uh, child, adult child, that's maybe not walking with Jesus, or there's a relationship at work that's just a struggle. There's this always something. Well, because it's a continuous struggle. Like, what did you think this was going to be? You say a cute little prayer that's not in Scripture, and, and Jesus, was just going to make your whole life perfect? No. We're supposed to follow Jesus, and he took his cross to the place of the skull. Like, where did you think Christianity was going to end up? It is, a, it is a, a continuous struggle of self-sacrifice, removing yourself from the throne of your heart and allowing Christ to lead and guide and rule your life. It's always going to be a continuous struggle, and he's writing for us to contend for the faith. It is under attack. We need to armor up. We need to fight for this. And again, this was written very early after the time of Jesus. This wasn't like hundreds of years later and like, oh, about time somebody like, you know, put up a fight and, a, you know, trying to attack us. No, from the very beginning, even, even when Jesus died and was put in the grave, they already had an alternate theory for the resurrection. Which what I love about Jude and James is just their very presence in the church is a defense for the truth of the resurrection. Because we know early in the Gospels, the brothers of Jesus were not believers. At one point when Jesus is preaching, the brothers come up to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, your family's here. And they were telling people, he's kind of outside of his mind. He's gone a little crazy. We got to get Jesus, you know, the son of God, get him back home, you know, like just go along with them till we can get him committed back to the... They thought he was crazy. And then you fast forward and you get to the book of Acts, and now James, he's a leader in the church in Jerusalem, not far away where nobody knows him, in Jerusalem, in his own backyard. So, what happened? How did James and Jude all of a sudden, not believers when Jesus was alive before the cross, but now all of a sudden are believers? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Jesus appeared to James, his brother. And could you imagine that? That would be like the greatest comeback ever in a sibling rivalry. you would be like, ha-ha, told you, you know. <laughs> but it's the resurrection. It's a defense for the resurrection to see the lives. Like what transformation happened in them that made them believers? Well, it's the resurrection. And so now Jude is writing to the church, and he says, it's time to contend for the faith. we got to put up a fight. Why? Because it's under attack. Now what's the attack? Verse 4. For certain people, and I think this is a little bit of a grace that Jude gives, because even like Paul, he named a couple people that were causing some divisions, that were gossiping, that were abandoning the faith. He called them out. And like, what worse way to have your name written in scripture, not under the, like the whole book of life or those in the church and these people that are serving Christ greet you, but under the, hey, watch out for those two because they're just troublemakers, right? Like way worse, like I remember going to school, I'd always get my name written up on the board because the teacher would do that. If you were in trouble, you got get your name written up on the board. Some days were so bad, I'd just had a rough morning, I'd walk in, write my own name on the board. I'd <laughs> be like, you better watch out, teacher, like I'm bringing it today. I wrote her name on the board once, no. And so you have these certain people in the church that Jew doesn't name, and I wonder if he doesn't name them to give them an opportunity to repent. But he's heard stories. He's heard, he's heard the reports that are happening, again, inside the church. We're not talking about those on the outside of the church. This is a family meeting. But he says certain people, they've crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and they deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how he describes these certain people. They would be called false teachers. And most likely, they're, they're different leaders within the church, but they creeped in. These are, these are real-life uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. They're deceitful. So it wasn't like they kicked open the back doors and said, hey, I'm here to burn, kill, and destroy the church. They came in like anybody else, trying to look just like anybody else. They crept in, and they came in unnoticed. So it definitely shows to the deceitfulness in which they approached to be a part of the assembly here, but also I think it's a slap against the leaders that were already in place. How did they go un- unnoticed? Because the leaders were apathetic and they weren't spiritually aware that there was gonna be attacks. And if you study the book of Jude, you can study Second uh, Peter 2, and they talk a lot about these false teachers and the attacks that are coming that had come to the church right there. But he's like, we, we need to be awake and alert. Because an attack from the inside is far more destructive than an attack from the outside. Like, I am not worried about the attack on the church from the outside. From, let it be even our own government, which we'll talk about. Let it be Islam and uh, Muslims or any other world religion. I'm not worried about the attack on the outside. It's far more destructive, an attack from the inside. Think of that one movie, Armageddon, right? Bruce Willis. He gets shipped up to a meteor that's supposed to hit earth and kill us all. Very fitting as we're getting ready to go into Revelation. We talk about a movie named Armageddon. And the best scene in the movie is not when his daughter's like crying over the TV because he's, again, sacrificing himself for the savior of the whole world. Like again, that old Hollywood movie. The best scene is when all the smart people are sitting around the table And we're we're like a couple weeks away from this thing hitting. And they're like, what are we going to do? And like a couple of these scientists are like, we could just hit it with some nukes and move it off course. And I love the one guy pretty much says, yeah, you're pretty much stupid. I'm the smartest man on the planet. Let me tell you what we need to do. And that's where they said we need to drill down into it and detonate a nuke from the inside. Because again, an attack from the inside is far more destructive than an attack on the outside. And Satan knows it. That an attack on the inside of the church will be far more destructive than anything that we have to endure from the outside. And so what does Satan do? Certain men, again, designated for this condemnation long ago, creep into the church. But we can start to see that, you know, after a while... Doesn't look right. You know, like, yeah, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, but eventually you're going to notice, like, eh, that, that sheep doesn't act like a normal sheep. Doesn't sound like a normal sheep. Doesn't operate like a normal sheep. There's something about that sheep that's just a little bit off. And look how he describes it. They're ungodly. Second Timothy 3.5 says, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. Or another way to say, they're not operating under the power of the Holy Spirit but they're trying to find their power in another source. They pervert the grace of our God. There's no moral restraint with these people. They'll live after their lust and their flesh and their desires. Galatians 5 talks about the fruits of the Spirit, but right before that it lists the works of the flesh, which sensuality is one of those. So they're not operating in the fruit of the Spirit with self-control, And goodness and kindness and patience, nothing like that. No, no, no. They're operating under sensuality. The word in the original is lewdness. So they're using the grace that God gives them to live in their debauchery of sin, specifically within a sexual immorality. Thank the Lord that never hits the church anymore today. And a lot of people struggle over, okay, what does sexual immorality really mean? Any sex outside of the biblical definition of marriage is sin, period. We will not bend to the word of God. We will allow it to absolutely stand firm. We will not cause it to move because we want it to fit our definitions. So let it be adultery and fornication. Let it be homosexuality. And, we, and then now the other thing that we have to define is, okay, what's biblical definition of, of marriage? One man, one woman, there's only two, that is marriage. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. So where scripture might not outline every possible sexual immorality thing there, because again, we're inventors of evil. If we just know the true right thing, a biblical marriage, everything outside of that, that's sin. But these people creeping in are saying, no, Jesus died on the cross for you. You have grace. Live however you want. That's not sin. Those are just natural desires that you're trying to carry out. There's even people in the world that would look at me as a student pastor telling our students to live for purity, not virginity. The Bible never speaks of virginity. It speaks of purity they would say, you're, you're, you're almost harming students to try to get them to repress those natural desires in them. Well, you've never read Scripture because if we went after our own natural desires, I would shoot every person that cut me off on the highway. <laughs> like, why'd you do that? It was a natural desire. It just felt like something I should do. I didn't want to repress that. But thank the Lord that he's called us to live the fruit of the spirit of Self-control. That's when I just smile and my wife says, Jesus died for them. (laughs) And they're about to die too. And so here we have these people perverting the grace of God. There's no moral restraint that they're just living in their sexual immorality. And they're encouraging others to do the same. And that's the same attack that we have on the church today that we want to redefine God's Word so it fits our culture, and instead of allowing Scripture to redefine what the culture says is right. Again, it's not the attack on the outside. It's the attack on the inside. Because the moment that we can uh, dilute or dissolve the foundation of the Word of God, again, in the church, then we're not held accountable to the moral obligations that are tied to it. And so we are called to stand firm on the word. And you think of even Paul kind of addressed this, you know, because there were people, even as he was writing to Rome, that were saying, you know, should we just continue to sin? Because the more sin we have, the more that God's grace will abound. That sounds logical. To which Paul said, no, not at all. Like, the words that he used are so strong. He's like, how could you even have that kind of thought? Like, you really believe that Jesus died for all of those sins so that you could just live in them? No. But this is the the characteristics of those that have crept into the church, that are leading and encouraging others. And then the last little part, they say they deny Jesus. And again, we think of that like, how could you not see that? What do you mean they crept in unnoticed, denying Jesus? I don't think they, again, they kicked open the front door and said, yeah, we don't believe in Jesus, but we are here, a part of the church. We've talked about this before. It's like walking over to the thermostat and just hitting it one degree up. You're really not gonna notice. going could be one little, one little move. It's not that big of a deal. Jesus forgives. None of us are perfect. We all fall to certain things. And we just keep moving just a little bit. We're not taking massive steps. We just walk over and one thermostat hit at a time, just one little temperature, until we're so far away from the biblical standard that he is called to us as followers of Jesus. That we look at our lives and we look at the things around us and think, how did we ever get here? One small little step at a time. And it's going to go unnoticed. You won't even notice that. Like if I just kept going just real slowly but surely, and this every once in a while I took a small step, eventually I'm going to walk off camera. Jeron's going to text me and say, take a hard step to the right and get back on camera. He boxes me in, I tell you. He's hamstringing me. But that's how it's going to happen in the church. Again, not the attack from the outside. The attack on the inside. And so now Jude gives us three examples of how God deals with this, and we can put it under the umbrella of rebellion. He's gonna give us three examples from the Old Testament. He goes, because these people that are creeping in, they're rebelling against the order that God has for us and his church. But understand how God deals with rebellion. So first he gives us in verse five, the example of Israel. He goes, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. We just celebrated Passover, the redemption of Israel out of Egypt, the 10 plagues, the 10th being the Passover lamb, the death of the firstborn, and they come out of Egypt. And there's about two and a half million that came out of Egypt, right? And even not all of them were Israelites, Some of them were Egyptians. You could go back and read that they were looking. They were seeing the the gods of Egypt. They were seeing the gods of Israel, seeing everything going down. We're going with Israel. And so they leave, and they go with them. And they're supposed to go up on the east side of the Jordan and cross over into that promised land. And so they get up there, and before they were going to go and take it over, they said, maybe it's a good idea. Let's take one young man from every tribe, and we're going to send them into the promised land to spy it out do a little reconnaissance. And so they send 12 guys in there for 40 days to spy it out. And they come back and they give a report. 10 of them say, it's impossible. We're like grasshoppers to them, not, not in literal size. There's just so many people. There's no way that a small, little, you know, sojourning nation like Israel could ever take over these people. Like we're not even equipped for war, nothing. There's no way it could happen. And, and the 10 give a bad report. But there were two young men, Joshua and Caleb, that pretty much looks at the 10 and looks at the nation of Israel and says, are you kidding me? Do you not understand the promises of God that he told us that he will give this this land if we just believe and trust him? But the older generation believed the report of the 10. And they didn't go in and they didn't conquer the land. And because of that, you can go back to Numbers 14 and study this. God says, you're gonna wander and I'm gonna give you one year for every day that you spied out the land and you didn't believe and trust me. And so now Israel wanders the wilderness for 40 years until the older generation dies off. One of the things I love about Calvary is that we are a church of Abrahams, Isaac, Jacobs, and Josephs, multiple generations. And that is good. Even though we have different preferences of how we would want worship to go, style of music, lighting, even my preaching, ministries, even the look of the church. I love that all four groups, we lay down our preferences because we're united in Christ. But I am asking the older generation if you have a pulse, you still have a purpose. Keep discipling us younger generations. There's something, there, there's nothing more encouraging than watching somebody that has lived a lifetime, a legacy of following Christ. To hear some of the testimonies that some of our Abrahams have in this very room of God's faithfulness just shown again and again and again and again. It's something me as a younger man, I haven't experienced that yet. But we have an opportunity to sit on the shoulders of spiritual giants. And so I'm just going to ask you, if you're an Abraham or an Isaac, don't be like the nation of Israel. Don't die off. Disciple. And if you're a younger person here, if you're a Jacob and a Joseph, and again, sometimes we can think, oh, generationally, what do they know? They know a lot. They've been through a lot. And you could learn a lot. So if you see somebody that maybe looks like an Abraham and don't make me describe it, I challenge you to invite them to breakfast, go get a coffee and to say, Hey, what would you tell your younger self? How would you encourage me as a young man or a young woman to walk with Jesus? Uh, I think it was last Thanksgiving. We do a Thanksgiving communion service, and there was a table right over here that Pastor Sean was leading. And what we wanted at the table was to go around and just talk about what you're thankful for. And as you get around the table, take communion, you leave, and then another group comes up and does that. The rest of, there was four tables. The rest of us pastors were, like, kicking them out, right? Like, multiple people coming through tables. Sean's table was, he only went through one table. He goes, but it was a bunch of Abrahams. And just to see how thankful they were for the Lord's provision all through just years and years and years of their life and knowing some of the things that they've went through. We are a blessed church to have Abraham's and Isaac's. And we are a blessed church to have Jacob's and Joseph's. But we will not have any division because of any kind of generational preference. And I challenge you, whatever side of the fence that you're on in that, look at the gift that we have from the other side of it. And then in verse six, he gives us another example of this rebellion. And he talks about fallen angels. We're not gonna geek out yet because after Revelation, we're gonna go, we're you know, finish the book and then we're gonna go clear back to the beginning like a good movie and we'll walk through Genesis and we'll geek out a lot more there. Uh, But these fallen angels that Jude is using as an example, he's just showing that they didn't stay within uh, their, their own position of authority. And so he uses these angels as the sin of rebellion against the authority of God in their life. You know, again, Revelation 12 talks about how the dragon swept his tail and a third of the stars were scattered down and, and sent down to earth. And people reference that. They go, oh, that's the third of the angels falling when, when Lucifer was cast out. Again, we'll geek about that when we get to Revelation. But Jude is using that as an example to talk about spiritual authority and our need, not not our wants, not if it sounds good, our need to submit to spiritual authority. Because this is something I believe in our culture that is absolutely crumbling quick. There are three ministries that God has ordained to rule over people. Number one, the family. That's why I believe the family unit, the nuclear family is under such attack in our culture. Men, fathers, It is time for us to stand firm and lead our families well. Each of you, as myself, we stand at the door of our houses, and we decide what is allowed in and what is not. It is time to get a little passion and zeal, if I can be a little polite, and be men, and guard our families, and guard our kids, Why? Because that's a ministry that is ordained by God for you to carry out. And so if you are looking at your life and looking at your family and you feel like it's in disarray, I hope you look inwardly first and understand what is not set in order here and here. Then lead your family well. But that's an ordained ministry of God to rule over people is the family. And anything that God ordains, I believe the world's going to attack. And we see it in the family. Number two is the church. That you do have spiritual authority over you. If you don't know who that is, meet me after service and I'll introduce you to him. Great looking guy. That each of us are called to submit ourselves to pastoral authority. Hear my heart. This is not a pride, not an ego thing, not a platform for me. If I could do anything else, I would absolutely do it. But God has called me to be a pastor. And if I do anything else, I'll be walking in disobedience. But with that, I understand that there is a level of responsibility that is put on me. I fully believe God's word says that I will be judged more strictly because of the position that I hold, that I will absolutely answer for how the church goes when I stand before Jesus. Why? Because you're the pastor. So not only do I stand at the door of my house, I stand at the door of Calvary. This is what we're gonna be about and this is what we're not gonna be about. And there's so many pastors that it really grieves my heart because they don't have the support from their people. You hear things like, oh, if it wasn't for all the people, I would love ministry. Then you don't know ministry because ministry is about people. It's not about our events. It's not about the things that we do. Ministry is about people in getting into pastoral ministry, the two things that I hold so near and dear that I was encouraged with in my role. Number one is to feed the flock. Nobody cares what I have to say. Teach the word of God. And so as long as I'm the pastor, let it be from this pulpit, let it be from student ministries on a Wednesday, let it be from our little ones and cow kids. As much as I joke about that, We will teach them the word of God at an appropriate level to where they are at. That the word will absolutely be foundational here. And if you don't like that, the door swings both ways. That we will allow the word of God to lead, guide, and direct our lives. And it's not about trying to redefine this to fit our desires. We redefine ourselves to fit the desire of Christ for our lives. But if you look at the statistic of how many pastors actually retire as pastors, It is very, very few because of the stress and the pressure. And they say, I just don't want to deal with people anymore. And it's actually very sad. Feed the flock. Number two, protect the flock. Feed the flock the word of God and protect from outside attacks and inside attacks. And so in all pastoral authority that I have, When Jude says there's certain people that have crept in, we can't be so naive to think that he's only talking to these churches that were a couple thousand years ago. He's writing to us today. And so if you are a certain person that is only here to try to bring division, gossip, destruction to Calvary, you are not welcome. And it is my role, it is my responsibility to protect the flock and I will do that with every bit of pastoral authority. But if you're broken, if you're hurting, if you're grieving, if you're a sinner just like me, if you need grace and mercy and peace and love to be multiplied in your life, welcome to Calvary. And this is a place for you. Because if I'm not disqualified for my brokenness, then neither are you. But what we won't have is certain people coming in to try to get us to creep and move from the mission that God has for us. That it's not something we just put on the wall, that we just shout out, that the existence of Calvary is absolutely to love God with everything in us. To love others, even the unlovable, even those that are broken, that the other churches don't want to have anything to do with. And I don't know if that's true for them or not. I've only been here a couple of years. And the heart for Calvary is to make an absolute impact in this community. I tell the staff a lot, if the, if the car show got closed down in the lake, that would make an impact in our community. If the boat races stopped at the lake, that would make an impact in our community. You know, if even one of these restaurants closed down, it would make some kind of an impact in the community. But what about Calvary? If our doors closed, what kind of impact would that make in the community? Our heart to do ministry is not within these walls. Ministry is what we do Monday to Saturday. When we leave, and I hope you use the new exit, that's when you enter the mission field. That's when you live out your faith. And so my role is to feed the flock and protect the flock. And I would covet your prayers and how to do that in a way that honors Christ above everything else. Even if it means, eventually, I'll have to step aside and hand this ministry off to someone else because I do not want to get in the way of the work of God. And then the third way, the third ministry that God has ordained to rule over people is the government. And we live in the middle of Missouri. And there's some pretty strong political views. And I only encourage you Do not let your political affiliation supersede your identity in Christ. And I know right now, a lot of us probably don't like who is sitting in different offices of our governments. But we are called to follow the example of Jesus. He had a way worse government that ruled over him. The apostles had a way worse government that ruled over them. And what do all of them in unison say? Pray for your leaders, obey your leaders. Now, if they start going against the word of God, that's a different thing. But those are the three ministries that are under, that God has ordained to rule over men that I believe all three are under attack. Families, the church, and the government. And what Jude is saying is that these certain people have come in and they're trying to get people to rebel against the the God-ordained authorities over their life. That's not godly. And then the last example that he uses is Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the one city that is the, or I guess two, the most referenced cities in the Old Testament? Sodom and Gomorrah. And one of my professors, Dr. Stephen Collins, he's over the whole archaeological department at Veritas uh, University. Uh, He has a phenomenal book. I could even send you a link of an interview where he has found Sodom and Gomorrah. And the archaeological proof of the fire is outstanding. And so not just that, oh, we think this city is that, but the archaeological proof of the fire rained down from heaven that served as a punishment is actually very, very interesting. But again, he only uses this example inside the church because of this sin of rebellion with lust. So you have Israel, the sin of rebellious unbelief. You have these fallen angels that show you the sin of rebellion against authority of God. And then Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin of rebellious indulgence of lust. And what do we learn in 1 John? Lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. The same three areas that we are seeing these certain people, again, not just that they're walking in their sin, they're trying to stir it up in the people of God. They're trying to stir it up in the church. And and the key that we need to see here is that Jude did not focus on these false teachers, not on their theology, but their lifestyles. It wasn't that they were teaching wrong, they were living wrong. They were considered false teachers because not of their lack of orthodoxy, which is right doctrine, but of their lack of orthopraxy, which is right living. And if you go back to verse four and you see the examples and the the characteristics of these certain people, how do we see that today? You know who the biggest false teachers we have in the church today are? You and me. I am the biggest false teacher in my life. You know, how many times do I preach the gospel to myself compared to how many times am I preaching a false gospel of unbelief? God really doesn't love me. He really doesn't care about me. Or why would he allow this to happen? How many times am I preaching unbelief to myself? And how many times are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Or how many times am I hearing this false teacher trying to get me to rebel against the authority of God? Don't wake up and read your Bible. Don't, don't try to show the fruit of the Spirit. Don't walk in the new life that Christ has given you because of his death and resurrection. Don't walk it like, it, I hear the gospel, the false gospel of rebellion against the authority of God far more than I'm preaching the gospel of submission to the authority of God. You know, there's talking to pastorally, I am called to be above reproach. Scripture is very clear on that, but I'm not above correction, that I have six men full of the Holy Spirit that serve on the board. Some are in this room, and it's not something that they've put on me, but I have asked and put myself under them. Pastor me. Call it out in me. If you see something in me, call it out in me encourage me, keep me accountable, that I'm not just because I'm the pastor I get to do whatever I want. Nope, I account myself to six men that know everything about my life, even down to my devices. One of our board members, along with two pastors outside of Calvary, sees everything that I Google search. And if there's any way in me that is unbecoming of the role that I have, it is Upon their responsibility to remove me. Why? Because God's work is more important than my position. And so I preach to myself a gospel of unbelief uh, against the authority of God. And there's so many times that I want to try to soften my own sin and lust and desires in my heart. But we need to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves. I know somebody put a timer on me. I know we're about wrapping up. but you, me, were the biggest false teachers in our life. And so for us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, we need to continue to preach the gospel of grace, that it is sufficient in our weaknesses, that God loves us and we see it no more clearly than at the cross in the empty grave. And we need to absolutely have a sure foundation of the word if we're gonna be his hands and his feet because we can't give what we don't have. That the greatest thing, like, you might be thinking, like, as a, as a dad or a mom and think, oh, I'm supposed to disciple my kid, but I didn't go to Bible college like you. Yeah, and I didn't have your kid either. That your role as a parent absolutely supersedes my role. It is not towards us just a handoff by proxy discipleship. And that's why Adventure Week is scheduled and planned and, and strategically aligned to platform the parent as the lead discipler not the pastor, because again, the parent is the most influential person in a child's life all the way up even to teenage years. That we are strategically doing that because we believe in the ministry that God has ordained over families. And so we have to continually preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to be students of the word. We need to be full of the Holy Spirit because how can we give what we don't have? And so for us, as followers of Jesus, family conversation, wrapping up, how we live is the most reliable indicator of what we actually believe. And remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so the challenge this morning is for each and every one of us to look at our life and say, where have I allowed at least these characteristics of certain people to indwell my heart and to move me off course of the goal, the upward call, that prize of Jesus Christ in my life. We all have it. So if you walk out of here and be like, man, it didn't apply to me at all, you are being deceived. We all have it. And it might not be these three issues But there's something that's causing us to walk in rebellion because that's what sin is. And we're all sinners. We're all walking in rebellion. But here's the hand of Jesus in full grace and love saying, come back, walk with me, realign your life, your hearts to me. Let me lead and guide you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We trust you and we just thank you, Lord. We thank you for the hard conversations that we need to have. We thank you for the challenge upon our lives. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we leave here this morning, we would leave in a spirit of repentance, leave in a spirit of confession. We would leave in faith, knowing that whatever weaknesses, sin, brokenness, shortcomings that we have, you are greater and you are bigger than all of those. And so we ask for you to pour out your grace upon us. Shower us in your mercy and your love, Lord. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lead us that we would be faithful, fruitful, and fulfilling the call of being your bride, being your church. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said